Welcome, welcome everyone to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined as always by Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, Bill Galston of the Wall Street Journal and Brookings, and Damon Linker of The Week. We are delighted to welcome as our special guest this week, my go-to guru on all matters trade and economics for that matter, Scott Lincecum, <laughs> a fellow at the uh, Cato Institute and a professor, uh, a visiting lecturer at, uh, is it Duke Law School? Uh, yeah, Duke, yeah, Duke Law School and, and undergrad too. All right. Well, welcome. So glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. And uh, this is a little bit of a setup because two of our colleagues on this podcast have been expressing some uh, really subversive ideas about controlling (laughs) uh, controlling exports of drugs and 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 reshoring our our national supply of drugs. So this is obviously a very um, live issue. A lot of people have. Were, were alarmed by numbers that made the rounds suggesting that something like 80% of our <laughs> drugs come from China. Yeah. Um, and um, so you had a piece in National Review about this. Actually, I invited you before I even saw this piece, yeah. but it's perfect. Um, uh, so talk to us about whether our drug supply is vulnerable because it's sourced overseas. Right. And so I, I think the the first thing is to admit that we really don't have the data we need to uh, make a lot of final conclusions, at least on the pharmaceutical side. Um, the, the fact is that the FDA, to their credit, was complaining about this about a year ago now and, and since. Um, the FDA simply hasn't collected this type of data. And the data, um, the CARES Act actually does, for the first time, um, get the government to start looking a little more at the pharmaceutical side of the supply chain. Um, but that said, and this is something, you know, I discuss at length in the NRO piece is that the data we have aren't nearly as terrifying as what you keep reading. Um, you know, including what was it? HR McMaster had an op-ed yesterday that repeated some of this stuff. Um, and you know, one of the data points and, and by the way, m- you know, major kudos to Eric Bohm over at Reason Magazine for really digging into these data because, yes. um, he wrote just a simply fantastic long form piece on this, this talking point that Tom Cotton and others have used saying that something like nine or 80 to 90% of all of our drugs uh, originate in China. And so he dug into this and realized that that, that stat, <laughs> it was um, a, a victim of a really bad game of kind of DC policy phone tag. Um, it started out as something far more innocuous, looking at overseas production of certain pharmaceutical inputs. Um, it then made it into a, a Senator Grassley letter that, that distorted it a bit, uh, then made it into a Politico article that distorted it even more, and then finally made it into certain speeches and, and other articles that turned it into this 90% number or whatever, 80% number, excuse me. And so um, what Eric actually found out is, uh, again, that, the, that the, the data aren't nearly um, that terrifying. Um, but as I said, it, it would be good to trace it a little more closely. Um, but when you look at the data we have, what you see is that the United States is 
kind of firmly entrenched in the global medical supply chain, um, both as an importer, producer, and exporter. Um, the, the WTO has shown that we're one of the largest producers of medical goods in the world, including pharmaceuticals. We produce a lot of generic drugs here. We produce a lot of what they're called APIs. Um, these are pharmaceutical inputs, basically. Um, but we also do import a lot of stuff, too. And so what I tried to do in the And as I recall, sorry to interrupt, but as I recall Bohm's numbers that he was able to come up with in that wonderful reason piece, um, uh, the the percentage that actually came from China of the inputs was something in the realm of like 23%. I, you know, don't, don't quote me on that. It was, it was, and then, you know, another big trench from India and so forth and other places, Um, you know, it was not insignificant, but it was nothing like the 80%. Exactly. And, and the now, now, critics will say that, well, China ships to India and India ships to us. But even if you combine those numbers together, you're still not looking at even a majority of, uh, of these pharmaceutical inputs coming from India and China. Um, Now, now, look, you know, is supply chain diversification, um, is diversification of sourcing good? Yeah. And, you know, we had this other agreement called the Trans-Pacific Partnership that was specifically designed um, for that type of diversification away from China and elsewhere. Um, but again, the, the basic numbers don't show this, this crisis that, that we keep hearing about. Um, okay, but the but other thing the people will... Sorry, go ahead. I, I, I was just say, the other thing that's really important, though, is to look at domestic production. And that's, I think, the other big thing that's missed. Um, you know, you hear stats like um, 95% of ibuprofen imports come from China. Well, they leave out the massive domestic production we have of not only generic drugs, but a lot of medical goods as well. Right, and right. It doesn't mean 95% and ventilators and the rest. So it doesn't mean 95% of the ibuprofen that's on shelves. It means right. 95% of the imported uh, right. ibuprofen. Right. And so the St. Louis Fed just a couple of weeks ago issued a fantastic study actually looking at this. And they found that of uh, essential medical equipment like hand sanitizer and masks and PPE and ventilators, so leaving out pharmaceuticals, they found that China was only 9% of total domestic production and that American producers, American producers counted for about 70% of domestic consumption of these goods. Um, okay, so Scott, again, so, so sorry, sorry. To, yeah. Let me let me ask this because the people mm-hmm. say, okay, so we're not in quite as bad shape as we thought regarding the sourcing from China, but why not have um, all of our PPE, all of our drugs, and so right. forth made here at home? It would provide jobs for Americans, and uh, it would be more secure. And yeah. what's wrong with requiring that? Right. So there's a couple problems. Um, First is a cost issue. Um, In non-pandemic times, you don't want uh, medical goods, essential medical goods to cost um, you know, upwards of five times more. Uh, that was one calculation uh, recently for uh, for masks. Five times more produ- th- to have them produced in the United States. Um, you you know, it makes sense in pandemic times when, of course, you know, you're going to have high value producers switching to lower value products. You're going to be having, you know, there's going to be uh, price pressures on the demand side. But in normal times, we want drugs, we want PPE, we want all this stuff to be as as 
cheap as possible um, because, of course, you're trying to encourage the consumption of this and, of course, not discourage people from getting the medical care they need. Right. So and that, it keeps medical costs sorry. down, right? And it's part of yeah, keeping exactly. medical costs you know, you know, it, is, it is pretty funny to hear a lot of populists complain about drug prices and then complain they want to reshore the entire pharmaceutical supply chain. Um, those two things are not actually compatible. Uh, and so, so, that's, so cost is an issue. Um, the other, I think, really big economic issue is that it is really not practical or possible to maintain pandemic level capacity, manufacturing capacity in non-pandemic times. Um, we're going to use 20 times as many masks this year as we did last year. Um, we're going to use uh, multiples of all sorts of these types of products. Now, um, what that does is let's say you subsidize a bunch of manufacturers to maintain all this spare capacity. Well, that's not profitable. So they either are going to simply be propped up um, in perpetuity to maintain this capacity, or they're going to be running at 80, 90% capacity utilization and flooding not only the United States, but the global market with all of these goods, which ironically, is precisely the type of stuff that we complain about China doing in massive global overcapacity of these goods. Um, so, so that's another really serious distortion. Um, but the last, I think, is, is also quite important. And that is that if you look at the history of American industrial protectionism, you see over and over again that industries like steel or shipping and the Jones Act, um, these industries that are deemed essential to national security and thus subject to all sorts of protectionism or subsidies or buy American quotas and so forth, um, actually don't end up being lean, efficient, and innovative. They end up being these kind of uh, small zombie industries. They have less output um, they, and they spend more on executive pay and lobbying than they do on innovation. And that's uh, precisely what you don't want in something like medical goods or pharmaceuticals. And so, you know, you combine these things together and you see that that's the reasons why you have the American Cancer Society and all sorts of medical organizations writing to the president um, in opposition to buy American mandates because they know that all of these things are going to actually produce uh, worse health and consumer outcomes um, and in the long term, not really create a vibrant industry at all. Okay. Um, can you just say a couple words about stockpiling and then I want to move on sure. to China? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was quite timely. The Wall Street Journal had a fantastic article today on stockpiling. And so, you know, one of the things I've, I've said repeatedly is that there is a, a very simple um, solution to most of the problems that we're now facing and things that, that don't require broad-based industrial policy and don't require uh, protectionism, and that is stockpiling. Um, and you look at a country like Switzerland um, that has had very few, if any, supply chain problems or consumption problems, and that's because they have a really robust stockpiling system for precisely these types of crises. And going back to the Wall Street Journal article today, they actually dug into the history of our stockpiling efforts. And they found that, 
that both private and public stockpiling efforts of the last, over the last decade were com- not completely, but really ignored at the expense of other things. And so again, you, you have a situation where it, it's quite cheap and quite effective to stockpile a lot of these goods, particularly on the really low value side um, in non-pandemic times. And thus you have most of what you need during pandemic times. Um, And, you know, of course, again, that's not to say there isn't a need for some domestic manufacturing capacity and and there's not a need for for, uh, regulatory regimes that, that recognize, you know, pandemics and deal with them. But... It, there certainly are easier, uh, simpler ways to uh, achieve the type of s- security of supply that you need in a pandemic that don't involve, you know, again, broad-based uh, industrial policy and protectionist programs. If it was good enough for Pharaoh when Joseph warned him about the seven <laughs> lean years, right? Right. <laughs> okay. Um, let's just talk for a little bit, if you would, um, about the China trade deal. Because yeah. one thing that um, even even Trump's skeptical Republicans will say to me is, look, you know, I, I don't like Trump. He's, you know, he's not competent, blah, blah. But boy, on China, he's been really good. He took it to <laughs> China and that was needed. Nobody else was willing to do that. And that was a real step forward. All right. So um, we have imposed 360 billion, roughly, in tariffs on China. Yeah. Um, they've responded with 110 billion on us. Plus, uh, we've shelled out 28 billion dollars in direct aid to farmers who were harmed by China's quotas. Um, and um, and now we have this this so-called first phase trade deal with with China. Right. My question to you is: um, Did this deal do? Anything good? Did it did it achieve <laughs> yeah. what it was designed to do? Okay, good. Tell us. So, so, so uh, I mean, let's start with the good, and then we can get to the bad and the ugly. Um, so, the good is that I think you'll find pretty universal agreement among uh, the the trade wonks out there that the China deal, in terms of tech transfer and a few things on intellectual property, um, uh, on GMO recognition for ag- agricultural crops, there are a few things, uh, financial services liberalization, that China agreed to that were, were good and that were probably um, a marginal improvement over what the Chinese offered um, back to Wilbur Ross in 2017 uh, when this all when this first all got started. Um, so that's that's the good, and and so that's fine. Um, the the bad is the immense cost, um, and that is uh, in on the tariff side, um, really really substantial um, in terms of every an, a legitimate economic analysis of the the China tariffs shows substantial losses in employment in GDP, um, and of course, the fact that American consumers, be it companies or individuals, are paying the vast majority of these tariffs, not China. So the Chinese did not lower their prices in order to maintain U.S. market share. Instead, what what happened was that uh, American companies and individuals ended up uh, shouldering the cost of these tariffs, which, as as you said, was quite significant. 
I think the tax foundation called it the largest tax increase in, in history, which again was all being borne by by Americans. Now it was hidden well, because it wasn't called a tax. Of course. Yeah. And you know, tariffs are one of the reasons why we enter into trade agreements is to bind our own politicians' hands, because tariffs are such a, a politically palatable way to impose new taxes and do all sorts of economic planning without most Americans noticing. And then of course it breeds into nationalism and all this or feeds into nationalism and all the rest of this stuff. Um, so, so that's the bad. The bad is that the cost was, was pretty immense. Now it didn't cause us to spiral into a recession or anything like that crazy, but it did cause a, a significant and noticeable hit, uh, including to manufacturing. Um, and you know, that was acceptable to a lot of folks during, uh, a non-pandemic time um, because everybody, you know, the job market and the manufacturing sector were firing on almost all cylinders. Now, however, you're seeing more and more stories about companies having to choose between paying their tariff bills or paying their payrolls and uh, how tariffs are actually providing an additional and needless headwind for American manufacturers that are just getting brutalized by, by the pandemic. Um, so, so that's the bad. The ugly um, really gets into the managed trade side uh, of the deal. And that is all of these guaranteed purchases, um, which, you know, who knows if, uh, if China can even can meet these deal, uh, these, these terms, um, especially now. Um, but those things are precisely what you don't want in a, in a trade agreement. And it actually might increase American farmers and uh, American manufacturers dependence on China because these, the targets that, that supposedly the Chinese need to hit, um, are, are immense. And so, um, you look at, at those terms and it's really, uh, that is, is, uh, a, a, a huge mess going forward. Right. Right. Okay. Well, um, one, one last thing. Um, didn't they leave the most contentious matters to a supposed yeah. second deal? So, you know, the intellectual yeah. property issues and the state mandates and that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, the, the other very notable thing about the phase one deal is it's just a phase one deal. Um, it leaves all of the real fundamental issues that we have with the Chinese economy and economic approach, but punts them to phase two. Um, and that is industrial subsidization, state-owned enterprises, um, you know, the operation of their financial sector, a lot of things that, that really form the, the basis for the economic relationship, the bilateral relationship, um, have not been touched by, by the phase one deal. And quite frankly, it, all the tariffs remain in place until phase two, um, which, you know, good luck uh, with that ever being concluded. Okay. As always, you were right to the point and uh, pithy, and thank you for that. Um, My pleasure. And we will now move on to our second subject, which, um, Scott, you're going to stick around for. So thanks. Sure. Um, we're going to talk now about the, um, the, the current fight against the virus. Um, as of today, we have about 30 million Americans unemployed. Um, we've uh, got 61,700 or so deaths. Uh, and we're having... Uh, we're having some worries about the food supply. Uh, the, um, 
the president of Tyson Foods uh, took out a full page ad warning that the supply chain for our food is broken. Um, the president has decided to order that meatpacking plants remain open. Um, Linda, you um, you wrote you wrote about the uh, the meatpacking plants. You know a little bit about this, so um, why don't you give us your reaction? Yes, I do. I was for about five years a director of a publicly owned company, Pilgrim's Pride, which at the time was the largest uh, processor of poultry in the United States. And so I've got some experience in how these plants work and what they're capable of. And uh, I was frankly horrified uh, at the president's order, his essentially his demand, because uh, most of these plants, of course, want to stay open. They've been shut down in certain instances around the country uh, when they've been, become hotspots for the coronavirus. And we've had uh, many people die, dozens of people die uh, around the country, uh, many hundreds, perhaps into the thousands of people who've become infected. And so the president's order uh, essentially is doing nothing more than tying the hands of local health officials to be able to shut down a plant when an outbreak occurs. And he really has put the uh, cart before the horse here, the president has, because he's ordering these plants to stay open, but he's doing absolutely nothing to provide them with protective gear that's necessary or to provide them uh, and guaranteed tests, because the only way to make this safe for workers is for them to be tested to ensure that when they go into the workplace, they do not already have the virus. And so I, I think this is going to be a, a real disaster uh, and one that the president hasn't helped. He's actually uh, hurt uh, by putting in into effect these orders. Um, I think they did. I think the White House did later say that they would supply some uh, protective gear um, to some of these plants, at least. But um, uh, yes, the they point, have. Yeah, but, but but again, but, not necessarily as much. But the testing is the, the testing is the is the crucial thing. And and I wrote a column this week about the. Um, a proposal. There are a number of them out there circulating, but this one was from the Harvard Safra Center on Ethics. That was a sort of bipartisan proposal that would that would have a huge push on testing because that is the only way uh, to to reopen the economy without also having a huge health catastrophe. Um, you have to have a, a very very organized and and uh, systematic system of testing. Um, but um, Bill Galston, uh, dozens of meatpacking plants have been shuttered. Uh, Two million chickens are being destroyed, even as we speak, in Maryland and Delaware, which is a big producer of chicken, uh, because they cannot get the workers that they need to process them. Um, so are you of the camp that says this is a case where the president really ought to invoke the uh, more powers that he has or whatever, you know, the emergency powers and, and force them to stay open? Or are you somebody who, what, what's your view? Well, my view is a, you know, we need, we need an, an intact uh, supply chain for the foods on which we depend. And B, we can't, we can't get that unless we simultaneously ensure a basic level of safety for the workers in these plants. It's not complicated. 
We have to do both at the same time. And, you know, this is, this is not, or this is an example of what I call field of dreams economics, where the assumption is, if you open the plants, the workers will come. Well, they get a vote. And, uh, and they are voting with their feet not to re-enter plants that they have good reason to believe uh, have managements that are inattentive to their basic safety concerns. Well, and these, uh, a lot of these people are, you know, they're living, you know, quite on the edge. You know, they don't make that much money. And if they get sick, um, they they can't come to work. And that's just a fact. And lots and lots of them are sick. Well, there's, but it's worse than that because many of them got sick and were ordered to report to work anyway. Right, so, right, right. You, but, so there's but, been an, an enormous amount of pressure on, look, I think this is very this is very straightforward, and it's part of a larger issue that has emerged recently about safe harbors for employers. And my view, shielding is, them from liability. Exactly, and my my view is that safe harbors make sense in principle, but in practice they're unacceptable unless the conditions that you have to meet in order to be granted that legal immunity are the ones that are necessary in order to uh, guarantee worker safety to the extent that it can be guaranteed. And in the case of meat packing plants, I may evoke a howl of protest from Linda, or maybe she agrees with me. Uh, For the foreseeable future, uh, the current practice of production lines where workers are jammed together cheek by jowl simply can't be allowed to continue. There's going to have to be more, more spacing, that will reduce the productivity of the plants and increase the cost of production uh, for poultry and pork and beef in particular, but so be it. I think we have no choice unless we want to, in effect, institute a draft for meatpacking workers and force them to take risks that they have no intention of taking left to their own devices. Yeah, let, let me, I'm let sure me we'll have Jared that. Kushner being drafted <laughs> to go stand in one of those assembly lines. I can just see Ivanka uh, cutting yes. up chickens, boning chickens. But let, let me respond to that because I think you know, to be fair to these companies and, and having been on the board of one of these companies, they absolutely, companies want to ensure the safety of their workers. It's in their interest to do so. You cannot produce good profits and uh, good products if you don't have a workforce uh, that is healthy. And one of the big problems is one that Bill hit right on the head, and that is who is going to take these jobs. The fact is, many of the workers in these plants uh, are immigrants, and a portion of those immigrants are in the country illegally. And I know firsthand that even when companies try to make sure that they're abiding by the law, uh, Pilgrim's Pride, the company I was on the board of, we had a huge raid, the biggest, I think, um, of all time on our plants, about half a dozen of them uh, across across the Southwest. And uh, ICE was able to identify 400 people who were working on phony social security. So we were early adopters of E-Verify. We tried to ensure that everybody was entitled to work. But if you have a social security number and it's a valid social security number, even if it's not your own, uh, the company has no way of, of, of knowing uh, that you're not entitled to work. So 
the point is when these workers decide not to come and not only are the illegal immigrants who are working these lines worried about getting sick, they're also worried about being found and deported to even worse conditions uh, in their home countries. And so uh, there's not going to be anybody to take these jobs, to take the place. And Bill is right. I think companies, uh, JBS, which is the company that purchased Pilgrim's Pride after we emerged from bankruptcy uh, in 2009, uh, they were closed down in Greeley, Colorado. And during that time, they did a sanitizing clean. They also uh, went in and put in plastic partitions. But you're right, there's going to have to be a rethinking of these lines. And for those who have not been into a poultry processing uh, plant, I will tell you that uh, once you've been in there, you understand why it is so hard to find people to take these jobs. You are literally shoulder to shoulder. There is a very fast moving assembly line. You are using very sharp implements, different kinds of deboning knives, etc. cetera. Uh, and it's dirty uh, in terms of, you know, being viscera and stuff, not bacterially dirty, but it's nasty work. It's not, it's not pleasant work. And there is a reason why Americans don't want to do these jobs. So, you know, there is no way that Donald Trump can wave a magic wand and order these companies to stay open if you can't find people to do the jobs. Damon, when you look around the world at countries that have responded well to this emergency, um, you find some things in common. um, And one of the big things is that they were prepared and they engaged in widespread testing. That's the case in South Korea and Singapore and Germany. Um, we ha- are floundering. Um, you know, we've, we've ramped up our testing, which is great. Um, but, uh, we are still lagging, uh, in, in terms of, you know, being able to get a real grip on where the virus is spreading um, and uh, where the next outbreak will be. And, uh, you know, uh, so do you, um, do you agree with the, the Harvard group that I cited in my column? I don't know if you read my column, but uh, there's a group that's, you know, recommending that they appoint like a pandemic, what did they call it, a pandemic testing board or something that would be the equivalent of the war production board of World War II. And it would have uh, authority over innovation, which is so necessary in testing. Um, for example, their their uh, Rutgers University has designed a spit test for COVID, which has just been approved by the FDA, which is is huge because if that can be ramped up, it you know eliminates the need for those awful long swabs that go all the way into the back of the nose and into the throat, um, and um, and it uh, it can be done at home and mailed in if you put it in the, in the right kind of um, uh, you know uh, test tube and so forth. Uh, anyway, um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, of course anything we can do to try to make uh, testing easier and faster uh, is is all to the good. We're seeing the of the countries abroad that you mentioned. Uh, Germany's the case that I know best, and. You know, the, Merkel has been doing a very good job there, at least as well as pretty much any uh, leader in Europe. But, you know, they're having their own glitches with trying to reopen. They're very tentatively trying to reopen some schools with older students. 
Uh, they're trying to open certain segments of the economy combined with large amounts of testing, but they're already finding spikes going up in certain areas and so having to reverse course. So even with full information through widespread testing, it's, it's a rocky business. Um, I, and I, I guess I'm a little skeptical given how shaky everything has been under Trump at the federal level that we can pull this off anytime soon. Now, I will say on the slightly more optimistic side, um, my own governor, I live in Pennsylvania, Governor Wolf, I think is doing a pretty good job with at least what we have now, which is uh, continuing with testing as much as possible. Uh, uh, while trying to do a kind of phased uh, reboot of or restart of the economy, instead of doing what I think they were uh, trying to do in Georgia, which is to pick certain industries throughout the state and allowing them to open pretty much everywhere in those industries and then moving to other industries, uh, Pennsylvania is going to be doing a green, yellow, red zone approach, which I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I think in a lot of, a lot of countries around the country, if you look at where the virus is, uh, is running rampant, it's usually in the higher density, urban or more urban areas of the state. That's certainly true in Pennsylvania. By far the largest number are in Philadelphia. Second highest are in my own county, Montgomery County, just outside of the city. But then when you get into central and western and northern Pennsylvania, where very few people live, there are plenty of counties with three positive test results and zero deaths, four and zero deaths, six and zero deaths, four, another one, Warren County, uh, northwestern Pennsylvania, one positive test and zero deaths. There's no reason why those counties can't, while continuing to do testing, um, open up probably close to entirely pretty soon. They, I think, will be announced as in the green zone with yellow zone being probably uh, places with a little bit higher rates. And then red will be, unfortunately, where I live. <laughs> and uh, doing a, a system like that, I think that's probably, given our shortfall in testing, that's probably the best that we can hope to do for now. Um, I, I have um, more to say about that in a second, but I want to ask Scott, um, you know, one of the things that you hear a lot now is that this is a moment for government. It's a moment for government activism. And there's yeah. a role for that in an emergency without any question. Um, right. And some of the things that libertarian leaning people would, would bristle at in normal times, they would agree in an emergency are necessary. But the, there's another side to this as well. And that is that in an emergency, you sometimes don't you need to relax regulation yeah. so that you can speed things along. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah. You know, I, as you said, there are certainly things that I think libertarians uh, in, in terms of government intervention can support. Um, you know, I mentioned stockpiling earlier. Um, that's a, an obvious area, but there are others. Uh, now, at the same time, though, um, you know, the, the, the joke on Twitter is that now everyone is becoming a libertarian in a pandemic. Um, you see occupational licensing um, re being relaxed uh, in all these different states and localities. 
um, with respect to the provision of medical services. You know, so all of a sudden, um, you know, the provision of medical services across state lines is okay. Now we're recognizing foreign medical licenses um, and doing all sorts of things um, in, on the regulatory side that um, were thought in, again, non-pandemic times to be uh, simply uh, impossible, either because of uh, industry pressure, so you know local protectionism, or because of uh, concerns about public health, which are so far proving to be pretty unfounded. But outside of that, you know, you're seeing other other areas, whether it's regulatory uh, rapid regulatory approval of of testing or treatments, um, the right to try, um, where individual patients are being allowed to uh, take certain treatments that, that in normally, normally they wouldn't be able to. Um, you're, you see uh, police uh, deciding not to prosecute or to arrest nonviolent uh, offenders. Um, and you're even seeing some areas where they're going to be releasing these folks who, who are in our prisons and jails, because those, of course, those are major hotspots um, and for for transmission of the disease. So, um, yeah, you know, it, there are a lot of areas where it actually things are becoming uh, more libertarian. Now, the question is whether that lasts after this crisis is over. And, uh, you know, I, I wish I could be more optimistic. Uh, maybe maybe some of them will. Um but I think in the longer term, because these are temporary waivers, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of them will snap back. But hopefully we'll have good data at the very least, you know, not to get, uh, you know, put my nerd hat on again, but at least we'll have good data on, on whether some of the um, old fears of this type of deregulation were, were well-founded. Scott, I don't think you ever did take your nerd cap off, so oh, that's fine. Oh. <laughs> we like that about you. <laughs> um, and uh, and we definitely appreciate your wisdom. Thank you for sharing it with us, and uh, we, hope, we hope you'll come back. Well, anytime. All right. Um, turning to politics, um, the big story this week, I think it's safe to say, oh, of course, there were many. But um, maybe the biggest was about uh, the Tara Reid accusations against Joe Biden. We talked about this a little bit last week. There have been new developments. Um, and I think there is going to be some begging to differ about this. Um, Damon, you had a column saying these accusations could sink Joe Biden. And I don't necessarily agree, but why don't you spell that out? Well, it's important to get my point in saying that I don't, I specifically argued in that column that it would not, they would not sink him uh, between now and the convention, whatever form the convention takes. But his, his hold on the uh, nomination, I think, is secure if he wants to keep it. I don't think that there's probably going to be enough opposition based on this one accusation uh, to, to kind of knock him off the top of the ticket um, for reasons having to do with his support in the party and which factions in the party support him and which don't. Um, but my point was that there is enough, just enough uh, veracity to the claims. And I think that tilted a little bit from uh, the preponderance of the evidence against the veracity of the claims before this last week to, um, to a little bit more um, weight given to them this week because of a little bit of corroboration we had this week. Um, 
from Tara Reid. But the important thing is that it will, the argument will not be about whether it's absolutely uh, verifiably true. It will not be about whether Joe Biden is an evil predator of women, because we all know that he's going to be running against Donald Trump, who, uh, no matter what Joe Biden may have done with Tara Reid, still cannot compare to the egregiousness of Donald Trump's uh, failings in this area. Some of them confessed uh, in his own voice on an audio tape uh, in the Access Hollywood uh, tape during the 2016 uh, campaign. So what this really is going to boil down to is, as always, the right loves most of all these days, hypocrisy and double standards. The fact that Joe Biden has been accused by someone who has at least, if not more, corroboration than uh, Christine Blasey Ford did against Brett Kavanaugh, and the fact that Democrats are not responding identically to the situation, combined with the fact that Joe Biden has at times been very outspoken in saying we must believe all women when they make charges of harassment and assault, are going to be perfect fuel for Trump, his campaign, and the Republican Party to completely bash Democrats and Biden for their hypocrisy, for failing to live up to their own professed standards, for being fake, for being just as bad as Donald Trump in all kinds of areas, that at least Trump, yeah, he's terrible to women, but he copped to it. It was just locker room talk, he said. But instead, the Democrats just try to cover it up to protect their own. They're just as... Uh, driven by tribalism as Republicans, except they're dishonest about it and they do it with finger wagging. Don't we hate them a lot? So my claim is not that this will really lose Biden many Democratic votes, but it could both whip up Republicans to get them to the polls and tilt enough independence in swing states to basically treat Biden and Trump as a kind of pox on both your houses they're both equally bad. And that is really the only play for a Donald Trump at this point. Maybe it always has been the kind of dynamic of the uh, negative partisanship where it isn't that you try to get people to show up to vote for Donald Trump, but you try to make the opponent, Hillary Clinton the last time, Biden supposedly this time, you get people to, to dislike the opponent as much as they dislike Trump. And when they do, we have a level playing field and then Trump has a shot. So that's that's the dynamic that I was talking about. And I hoped it wouldn't come to that. I thought Reed's accusations as of a couple of weeks ago seemed pretty darn thin. Uh, and they're still not uh, they're still not, you know, totally uh, obviously true. But they, it's murky enough by this point that uh, the I think the hypocrisy charge is going to be getting some traction. Okay, so I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I would just add a demurral on um, Trump did not cop to anything. He was caught on tape saying what he said, so he called it locker room talk, but he adamantly denied the accusations against him by something like 16 women that he had sexually uh, grabbed them in some way. Um, and he claimed that he was going to sue them all, which he didn't do. But right, um, including, anyway. including a rape accusation just last summer. 
Yes. So um, anyway, uh, but um, but I, I do think that the accusations against Biden are thin. But let's pursue this this matter of hypocrisy because it is what a- agitates people on both sides, um, and certainly people on the right are just loving the idea of being able to. Um, being able to wave this in the faces of the Democrats who really you know, were over the top in the things that they were willing to say about uh, Kavanaugh and believe about Kavanaugh based on very little um, uh, proof. And, uh, and the standard that they set, the standard was you have to believe all women. And um, that's an impossible and absurd position to take. Women are human beings. They lie, they cheat, they steal, just like men. Um, And even about sexual assault. There are lots of examples. I have them in my book, Sex Matters. Many examples of women who have made false accusations of rape and sexual assault. They have their reasons. Sometimes it's revenge. Sometimes it's jealousy. Sometimes it's malice. But it happens, and uh, we cannot live in a world where we pretend that that one sex is, you know, virtuous and never lies. I mean, it's an absurdity. Um, but but uh, Bill, um, the uh, the nominee who I do not think did this thing, I keep saying, and we can get come back to some of the reasons for that later. But the nominee happens to be a guy who. Um, was the point man for the Obama administration's changing the rules of uh, evidence throughout our university system for what could what kind of evidence could be um, considered uh, 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 dispositive in cases of sexual assault on college campuses? They loosened the standards considerably and eroded the the um, protections for the accused. And so a lot of people are going to say, well, huh, the chickens are coming home to roost now, aren't they? Because you made it a lot harder for young men in college to defend themselves. And now you yourself are being uh, assailed with a possibly false accusation. Ha ha. Well, uh, setting aside the merits of the loosening of evidentiary standards, which I was never, never in favor of. Uh, the, the fundamental question at this point is how the Biden campaign and the candidate himself will respond to the fact that, as I said to someone privately earlier today, uh, the dam really has burst in the past 24 to 48 hours. Uh, my view is that the, uh, that the campaign is not going to be able to maintain its current stance of flat denial and saying as little as possible other than that, uh, that there's going to have to be some serious movement towards making public whatever the record shows, uh, whatever whatever the content of the complaint that may or may not have been filed happens to be, uh, that, that people who were involved in some administrative capacity in Biden's Senate office uh, will have to come forward and they're their testimony is going to have to be a lot more organized and detailed than it has been up to now. The basic, the basic point is that the issue has now moved into a new phase 
and the campaign's response needs to move into a new phase. I think it will not go well if the campaign simply insists on maintaining its current strategy and its current public talking points. Well, could I just jump in here? I, I don't, I don't disagree with Bill that uh, the campaign has got to come up with um, with more of its response than it has. But I really think that this idea that uh, there are some people now coming forward to say, yes, we think that you know Tara Reid told us about this at an earlier point. I still am having great difficulty believing her actual allegation, and without getting too graphic about what it is that she described um, the former vice president doing to her. Uh, Some of it didn't even seem to make sense uh, in terms of how one would do what she described him doing to her, uh, given the fact, presumably, she was wearing underwear and fully clothed uh, when she stepped into that elevator. Um, And and so I, I am having real problems believing this woman. If she had simply said he pushed me up against the uh, the elevator and tried to kiss me, yeah, I could I could believe that. Um, and that might be a problem. But I think all of us are, are acting as if these allegations are going to have uh, a serious role to play in the election when there's this election is going to center around two things, the economy and the president's response to the pandemic. I mean, all of these other issues, I think, are going to be very minor issues. I don't see voters either going to the polls and voting against Biden because he's a hypocrite or failing to show up at the polls because uh, he's not uh, St. St. Joe. Um, So I, I, you know, I just think we're starved for other things to talk about besides the pandemic. But I don't think that this is going to be a big issue come November. Well, Linda, yes. you may be right about you may you may be right about that, uh, but having wandered in and out of six presidential campaigns, uh, I think one of the things that I've learned is that a smart campaign will make a list of its principal vulnerabilities and then try to re- reduce and mitigate them to the greatest extent possible. Uh, and especially because one of Trump, one of Biden's calling cards is that he represents honor and decency, right? And what you do not want to establish, you know, even arguably or optically, a position of moral equivalence between two people who so conspicuously are not the same. Uh, and so... Uh, and so I'm, I'm advocating a change of strategy by the campaign, not because I believe her allegation, but because if the campaign doesn't do anything more than what it's now done, others may believe the allegation. And the last thing that the Democratic Party and its nominee right, need right now is a diminution of support from suburban women who made the difference in 2018 between a House minority and a House majority for Democrats. Uh, And, uh, you know, and so I just, I, I just think that while agreeing with the judgments that you've made, uh, I don't agree with the strategy or tactics that you seem to think 
flow from those judges. Okay, yeah, I, I, I briefly I'm, just say oh. in response to that, um, I, I agree uh, with Bill's point, especially on the issue of um, Biden running on a platform of a moral reset from Trump. And so it is vitally important if he wants to try to do that, make that case, that he get out from under this thing as early as possible because it will undermine his ability to make that case. And of course, that is exactly what Trump is going to want to do above all. And I would also briefly say to Linda, I hope you're right, but you're wagering that the campaign and the the election are going to be fought on the ground of normal politics rather than Trumpian politics. And I guess my faith that that we can get away from Trumpian politics is uh, pretty weak by this point, um, kind of always going lower. And especially in a, in a context where, where Trump is not probably not going to want to be talking about the economy and, uh, and the pandemic and their consequences. He's going to be wanting to have his reality show uh, thing going on. And part of that is to uh, make uh, Biden look sleep, uh, sleazy, un, not and sleepy, <laughs> sleepy, sleazy, and untrustworthy uh, in a way that will make them seem more equal in the eyes of the public. Let's, um, let's delve just a little bit into some of the details here. Um, uh, Tara Reed, who has changed her name four or five times during her adult life, um, sometimes by marriage, sometimes for other reasons, um, styling herself different things, um, has also told quite different stories about what happened. Um, at first, she until last year, um, she was saying that uh, her experience had been not really so much with Biden himself, but that she had had a bad experience with the staff and that um, she was unhappy with the way she had been treated by the staff. She only worked for him for about seven months. Um, and, I, you know, when people come to Washington and they're all excited to be working for a famous senator and it doesn't work out, sometimes they need to give an explanation for why they were let go. And um, sometimes maybe that it's easier to say, well, I was sexually harassed than I didn't I, I couldn't cut it. So that's, I mean, that's speculation on my part, but here's the, here's what is not speculation. Um, she alleges that this assault where she says he, he pushed her against a wall, not in an elevator, Linda, but uh, in a secluded part of the uh, Senate office building, which is interesting because there really aren't too many secluded places. And she says that somebody had, he had just been talking with someone else and that person walked away when this supposed assault happened. Um, but that he pushed her up against the wall, reached under her skirt, and digitally penetrated her with his fingers. Now, um, he her claim is that this assault took place after she had already filed a sexual harassment claim against him, so she says. Um, so we're expected to believe that this is the way he was going to be, that he A, he would do this, and he would do this after such a, a, a claim and in a public place where anybody could walk along anytime in, a, in an office building hallway. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't ring true to me. Um, and then there are other problems. Um, I did a quite a lot of sleuthing over the last several days about this woman. And I really don't think she's very believable. She seems to be um, 
Well, I'll give you an example. Throughout 2017, she was tweeting all kinds of things against Russia and Putin, very much siding with the idea of the Mueller investigation proving collusion between Trump and and Putin. And then she flipped on a dime and she began to post post these these love letters to Vladimir Putin. Um, She said things like, quote, President Putin scares the power elite in America because he is a compassionate, caring, visionary leader beloved in Russia. And so when she goes on, he's keeping a calm focus on his own country's development and future. And then she has nasty things to say about America. Um, She's given many different stories about why she left Biden's employ. Sometimes she said it was because she couldn't work for for a senator who was perpetuating American imperialism. Um, Other times she said that she was sexually harassed. Other times she said that she wanted to pursue a career in the arts. Um, this is not someone who has been consistent. And, you know, the fact that a, a neighbor now says that she told her this story about, about being assaulted just means that she told her the story. It doesn't make it true. And um, in light It doesn't of, even necessarily mean that she told her the story. Well, I mean, that's, I just, that's, that's exactly right. And, and, and finally, when it comes to evaluating these sorts of claims, you have to take into account whether the person making the claim is credible. That's just inevitable. You have to. But you also have to look at the person's whole history. And men who behave the way she described him behaving right there, I mean, that's a, that's a despicable, criminal kind of behavior. And if he did it that once, you would think there would be many other examples of him doing similar things because men like that are predators and they do it again and again. And there's nothing. I mean, Biden is handsy. He he touches people's shoulders and he touches their hair and he said he's going to stop doing that. Fine, whatever. But nobody has ever said that he did anything sexual to them. They said he was a little creepy about the shoulder touching and stuff. But that is a completely different sort of thing. And... Um, so I, I find I, I find a lot of problems with this woman's story, and um, and I think the um, you know the, the, there's there are just multiple ironies here because I I do think that most people are not interested in whether it's true or not. They're interested in either revenge for Kavanaugh or anger at the fact that Democrats were hypocrites about Clinton, which they were, um, um, but. You know, I, I think in the end, you do have to have certain level, certain base level of fairness and say, you know, everybody deserves to to have the truth known if they're innocent. So that's well, my I, take. I think you're right, Mona. And by the way, I think the reason I uh, conjured up an elevator in that story is that when I was a, a young lobbyist on Capitol Hill, uh, there was a warning given to me by uh several other uh, female lobbyists that you didn't want to get into the elevator with certain senators. Uh, I can assure you that Joe Biden was not on that list. Uh, But that was, you know, I mean, yeah, women have have had to uh, be subjected to unwanted uh, kinds of attention and, and, uh, but there is not any history of uh, Joe Biden, you know, being somebody other than his sort of, touchy-feely, which he does to men as well as women. It's just, uh, it is the way he interacts. Uh, I'm very fond of of, uh, some 
Israeli television shows, and one of the things I notice about them is that they're much more touchy-feely than we Americans oh, are. Oh, definitely. Much and more like the Mediterranean culture. That's you know? right. And, yeah, and, and, men right. and I come from that kind of like culture, cheap. too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So at any rate, um, I think all of those, um, and I don't disagree with uh, either Bill uh, or uh, Damon on this. Uh, it is something that the that the campaign is going to have to deal with. But uh, I do resent very much people sort of wanting to believe uh, everything. And of course, you and I, Mona, um, are not in that category of believing that you have to always believe the woman. It depends. Exactly. See, the interesting thing, um, uh, this weekend, while I was, well, sort of, I'll call it researching for that column about Reed and and how the the Trumps the Trump campaign is going to respond to it, I went on Twitter and I I did a, a kind of obnoxious tweet about about conservatives not caring really about the substance of the accusation and only being concerned about the hypocrisy of it. And I wanted to see how conservatives would respond because a lot of conservatives follow my account. And so I spent about two hours kind of fighting with various people on Twitter. And I don't think I saw a single response from anyone on the right who said anything at all about, but we, we should hear what she said. Biden could be a predator. She was a victim. She was hurt. This isn't how you treat women. Not a single person cared. So as you said, Mona, this is all going to be this kind of second order uh, issue about hypocrisy, double standards. Democrats were mean to Kavanaugh. They're not mean to Biden. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, and that and that's really all it will be about. And to that extent, uh, what you said about Reed and all of those issues, I, I agree with all of those concerns. Uh, we mentioned them last week in, in relation to Kathy Young's very good reporting and analysis on all of this. Um, but in the end, uh, those things don't really matter for the second order Trumpian politics. It's, it's all, about, uh, all about the hypocrisy. <sighs> all right. Last segment, uh, Bill, why don't you start? Well, uh, I think we, uh, we are all fumbling our way forward in, uh, dusk, if not darkness, when it comes to responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have to be very open to, to voices that are, perhaps uh, make, making points that challenge our own positions. And in that vein, uh, a scholar I greatly respect, uh, Graham Allison, has just come out with, with a report uh, arguing for a much more relaxed approach to reopening of the economy and, and the society than I personally favor. But he, he says a lot that's worth considering. Okay. Linda? Well, along those same lines, um, I'd like to uh, throw some um, kudos towards uh, one of our fellow panelists, Bill Galston. And uh, he wrote a column this week called After Coronavirus Lockdowns Don't Expect Normal in the Wall Street Journal on April 28th. And I thought it was an excellent piece uh, describing that, you know, even if we go back to uh, life uh, that is more normal than we are seeing today, it's not likely to be the life that we had 
uh, say, in January. And I thought it was a very good piece, and I commend it to our listeners. Okay. Thank you, Linda. <sighs> Damon? I, as, as the token Democrat on the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, my brickbats to kudos ratio is very high. <laughs> <laughs> Um, We're all used to that in our various ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, not to uh, spend every comment I've made today about the whole Biden deal, but I guess it's just one of those weeks. Um, I, I just simply wanted to single out uh, Chris Hayes, who was on MSNBC. He's several clicks to my left, but he's very smart and a very honest journalist. He today, Thursday, uh, is uh, coming in for um, a lot of attacks from the Twitter mob. Hashtag fire Chris Hayes is trending quite highly throughout the, the country. And what exactly has he done to deserve this? Well, he actually ran a segment on his show last night looking at the Biden Reid story. And this, I think, and it was very fairly done. It wasn't uh, like a, a, a kind of slanted attack on Democrats or Biden at all. I'm sure he would much rather see Biden win than Trump in 2020. But uh, it just shows how how much of our journalism and our politics these days is not so much about, uh, once again, this point about it's not about the content. It's always the second order issue about um, wanting to, everyone wants to be a gatekeeper. So it's like you, you know, there, there's a trend on Twitter. Like it seems like every day the time, the New York Times covered this story wrong or they covered that story at all. It should be done differently. Let me be the editor to who makes these calls so that it reflects what I think is best. And in this case, the, the, the claim is not that the story was bad, but that Hayes covered it at all that this is something that could hurt the Democrats, therefore we should be quiet about it. And I think part of it is also driven by the fact that I think Democrats are also kind of flummoxed about how to cover it, because if they cover it but then are critical of Tara Reid in the way that Mona was, I think rightly, uh, then they're afraid they'll be accused of not believing all women, which kind of cuts against them from the other direction. So instead, they would rather everyone shut up. And I think Chris Hayes deserves better than that. I'm, I'm going to join that tip of the hat to Chris Hayes, um, just in general, because I do agree that he's honest. And, and of course, he's well to my left. But, um, but he, for example, was brave in taking on his own employer on the subject of sexual harassment, uh, NBC, uh, if I recall correctly. You can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Damon, but it was, didn't he, um, didn't he take a stand that, uh, yeah, it was uh, about Weinstein year, and the, and, Weinstein. The, and that, uh, the book, um, yeah, it was, uh, um, the, 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 New Yorker, the Dylan uh, Farrow. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. So yeah, he did yeah, a 10 minute segment on that. That takes that takes real courage, um, which is which is quite quite rare, and uh, so he deserves kudos. Um, I just wanted to mention a um, a specter from our recent past, Roger Stone, who uh, <laughs> has yet to um, begin serving his. He has to be yet to be sentenced. He's been convicted, but uh, he hasn't been sentenced. But today uh, there were stories in the paper about. Um, a Freedom of Information Act 
a request by several newspapers that has now revealed documents uh, showing that uh, he did indeed have a you know correspondence uh, with Julian Assange, which he has always denied. Uh, well, he hasn't always denied it, but he's denied it at the relevant parts. And um, some of these messages um, were from 2017. One was uh, actually one was from 2016, the day after the election. It was a one word um, email from uh, from Assange to Stone. Email was the word happy question mark. Um, And that was followed by a second message that read, we are now more free to communicate. Okay. So good old Roger Stone, um, who um, never does try to impersonate a good guy, had a, an incredible uh, comment about this when he was asked. He said, um, there is to this day no evidence that I had or knew about the source or content of the WikiLeaks disclosures prior to their public release, which just reminds me of every bad guy in every movie who, when the um, detective says, and then you took the money and you stashed it under the mattress and you slit the throat of the woman. And what does the bad guy say? Not, I would never do such a thing. Of course I didn't do it. I'm innocent. No, the bad guy always says, you can't prove that. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) that's, that's our Roger Stone. Um, but indeed we can prove it or at least come awfully close. So, um, anyway, just thought I'd close that circle. Thank you one and all for another great episode of Beg to Differ. We want to send a shout out to our audience because we appreciate you all very much. Our audience has been growing during this uh, emergency. A lot of podcasts are losing their audiences, but ours has been growing. So we appreciate you and uh, we would uh, be even happier if you would um, rate and review us. Um, You can also tweet at us and give us suggestions or comments. So thanks very much for listening until next week. (laughs) 